if you're learning Finnish on Duolingo for fun, that's bonkers. Hello and welcome to the Euro What, episode 201 dropping on July 18th, 2023. We are a pair of Americans trying to make sense of the Eurovision Song Contest. I'm Ben Smith and I'm here with my co-host, Mike Lacombe. Hey Mike. Hello. In this episode, we'll be talking about Finland with our special guest, researcher Zoe J, and Finland 2023 delegation member, Mati Muluoho. Nice pronunciation there, Ben. Thank you. I have been doing Duolingo for several months. How is that going? It is a fun challenge every day. I, at this point, I'm telling myself it is for puzzle purposes because every so often there are constructed language puzzles and it, just knowing how Ugric languages work feels like something handy to have in my back pocket, even though, as I say that, I dislike that type of puzzle immensely. So no, this is just me doing this for me. And really, that that's why you should do anything. It should be for you. Yes, so. <laughs> exactly. Let's talk about social media because Twitter's not doing great right now. <laughs> Oh? Uh. Yeah, and like hasn't been since last fall, so I've been branching out into other social networks. One of those that I've returned to has been Tumblr. I've had an account there for a while, and the Garbage Day newsletter will occasionally have links to very good posts. There's a level of fandom that happens there that I don't entirely understand, but that is very intriguing. And I happen to notice on their official fandom blog, they have a music tracker, and the week of Eurovision, Karya was on top of that list. It's not unusual for this to happen around Eurovision Week. I took a look at 2022, and Subwoofer, Sidizani, Kalusha Orchestra, Mahmoud and Blanco, and Constracta all appeared on the charts. So, you know, the things that had memes. Just like memes plus winner, that, that makes a lot of sense. Because of Tumblr's tagging structure, we're tagging who's in our posts, and those are rising to the top. Looking at this maze, you have Joker out and Lorene on the post-Eurovision chart with Kadia as number one. That normally peters out after a couple of weeks. That hasn't happened here. Oh. Karia was number one, then fell down to like, you know, like mid-teens. And then June 12th, which I think was around the time that Boyan was back in Finland, uh, went back to number one because there were a lot of posts. Uh, yeah. <laughs> As a person who has been watching the posts, there were a lot of posts. As we are recording, he's currently at number 14, and I kind of expected to go back up again because he just announced a European tour for this fall. It's a very interesting space to watch fandom. I think I'm going to keep watching it just because it, it's a dimension of fandom that I don't feel like I see as much on Twitter. Right. I also used to be on Tumblr, but yeah, the two ecosystems never really overlapped. And maybe that's just because it, it's not convenient to post tweets on Tumblr and Tumblr's posts. Like, it's just a process to get that over to Twitter. You generally see screenshots from each of those on the other Right. But the way that hashtags work on Twitter is completely different from the way hashtags work on Tumblr. They're much more organizational, and it's very easy to follow something like Kario. The interviews we did today started in May because right before the contest, there was this beautiful 50-something tweet thread right before the final highlighting the ways that every single public sculpture, every business logo, every what have you got like a bolero and a bowl cut. I don't think that we can answer the precise factors that caused Cha-Cha-Cha to top the televote simply because that's a lot of different countries. That's everybody but Finland voting. And if there's one thing I feel like you people who have listened to this podcast for all five years is like, we don't know how Europe thinks. 
Right. <laughs> yes. Uh, see all of our comments about this year's winner. All of our comments about being wrong, our tagline, our general whole vibe. Yeah. But what we can take a look at is like what that fan response felt like in Finland and sort of what that felt like for the team at Finland's broadcaster. Those are angles we can approach this from and we can talk to people and did back in May when I was like, we need to strike while the iron's hot. The iron is still fairly warm, it turns out, which is great as a person who's been sitting with these interviews for a couple months going, okay, I really hope that we're not missing the boat on this. We made the boat, Mike. So uh, let's crack open a Lankaro and talk about Karia Mania with some people who live in Finland. The first person we spoke with, Zoe J. She is a researcher at the University of Helsinki. She's also someone who gets to look at Eurovision as their day job as an academic, which is very cool to me. I'm so jealous of that. Yeah, honestly. like that. <laughs> I, I want to talk with her some more about the specific areas of her research at some point, but we mostly chatted with her about how Finland reacted to this in the lead up to the contest, what Finland's general impression of Eurovision is, and how this compares to their other entries. Terve, Zoe. Moi, thanks for having me. I actually got referred to you by Lena Malki, who composed the the beautiful list on Twitter of the many, many ways Finland was going all out for Karia this Eurovision. What is your background? I am so possibly you have been tricked into thinking I am some sort of Finnish expert by virtue of being Finnish. My background is actually Australian. <laughs> And I've only lived in Finland for about three years, but I am a very enthusiastic convert to the country. So I'm a, a researcher. My background is international politics, but specifically, the increasingly, the politics of Eurovision. How did you end up in Finland? Was that a particular area of interest? I really like Finland, but I ended up here because... The University of Helsinki is the only place that offered me a job at the time, <laughs> but I was quite happy. I would have gone anywhere, but of all the places, it turned out to be a particularly good one. So I was quite happy with the end result. How were you introduced to Eurovision? My first Eurovision was actually a junior Eurovision. I was like 13 or something, and it was, I don't remember when exactly, but it was like a, like one of those Sunday afternoons or a school holiday days where the horizons sort of are never ending and you just are watching hours of TV because there's nothing else to do. And this music competition was on television and I was like, oh, this is cool, kids singing songs. This is clearly for me. I am also a child. And it wasn't until years and years later that I was like, oh, what that was must have been a junior Eurovision. Um, so that's, I guess, my first exposure to it. I first watched adult Eurovision deliberately on purpose in 2012. And it's been nice to watch the full circle of Lorraine sort of bookending my experiences so far. I heard people talking about it and sort of thought I'm going to find out what this Eurovision thing is and watch it deliberately. I was 22 at the time. And when you're in your 20s, you're doing that kind of thing where you try to, I don't know, you're trying to make stuff your personality. So I was like, I want to pick something that's like my thing. And it was Eurovision and that has escalated quite dramatically and now it's literally my full-time job to research Eurovision. Totally yeah, relatable. Do, doing, a thing, yeah. <laughs> doing a thing ironically and then all of a sudden it's just yeah. who you are. How did you enjoy this year's Eurovision? Oh, it was so good. It was such a good one. I mean, I think we say that every year, especially immediately after them. You're like still listening to all the songs. You're like, God, this was the best Eurovision ever, but this really was a particularly good one. There are there's a much higher number of the songs that I'm still listening to on repeat every day than I usually have after a few weeks of the contest. So it was very exciting, very nail-biting kind of results. 
Were you in Helsinki for this year's Eurovision? Yeah, I was in Helsinki. There was this really positive vibe that you don't normally see except around sort of summer festival <laughs> events. Like Finnish people as a whole, uh, I hope they don't mind me sort of caricaturizing them like broadly like this, but in general, they're quite calm, reserved people. They they feel emotions. They just don't tell you what they are and you can't read it in their faces or anything. So <laughs> they, <laughs> you just sort of have to guess how they're feeling most of the time. But for like all of April and May, everyone is in a good mood and you can see it. And it's like... It just was a very cool experience to be part of this collective enjoyment. I speed read a couple different books on Finnish culture over the weekend. <laughs> and there's a period in 2018 where Americans discovered the Danish concept of Hugo and capitalism being what it is immediately was like, what are the other Nordic words that we don't have a translation for? So Power read like one that was about the concept of Sisu, which is, which is like the whole Finnish notion of grit and, and determination. What has... Finland's relationship with Eurovision generally, it feels like it's changed in the last few years, just with the level of what UMK has been doing, but I feel like it hasn't always been this strong. Sisu is a really good word for thinking about Finland's relationship with Eurovision. The word is originally for like coping with the winters and stuff, because it's, it's dark and it's cold most of the time. <laughs> so you need to be quite sturdy to cope with it, but you also kind of need to be quite sturdy to cope with Finland's results in Eurovision, because historically it hasn't been a particularly successful country. Finland's only won once. I think they've they finished in last place like nine times since they joined and had something like eight non-qualifiers. So they're really not a powerhouse in the way you think of somewhere like Sweden or Ukraine or historically Ireland. They're just sort of not great, um, which is a shame because like they're very enthusiastic about it. I think what's really interesting is how despite that sort of poor record of performance there's not this sort of negative attitude towards Eurovision. So like in other countries that don't perform very well, like the United Kingdom or Germany, there's this real strong discourse around like Eurovision not being very good. So British people love to rag on how bad Eurovision is and how people don't understand them and how it's because of Brexit or whatever that they're that they're not doing very well. And Germans seem to, or at least the German friends I have sort of switch off from it a bit. But Finnish people are just like, yeah, we still enjoy this thing. It's very cool. And there's not doing well has not historically seemed to get in the way of their enjoyment of the contest. So maybe that is part of the Sisu. They're just sort of like, yeah, we grin and bear this and put up with the difficult bits because the, the cool bits are worth it. But I think it definitely is changing a lot in the last few years. I know Ulla, the national broadcaster, put a lot of effort into revamping UMK, and it does attract a lot of very high-quality artists, a lot of artists who are very famous in Finland. Like this year they had both Robin Pakalin and the Portian Boys and Garia also, obviously. So they attract a lot of very cool Finnish artists, but also Finnish artists who are sort of well-known outside of Finland, like the Rasmus and Derud and so on. So I've been thinking about the Eurovision movie a lot recently for unrelated reasons, but one of the big plot points in there was about how they were going to sing in Icelandic. Was singing in Finnish a rallying point around this year's entry? Yeah, I think it really is important that the song is in Finnish. There have not been a lot of songs in Finnish in the last sort of decade. The only one I can remember off the top of my head is Aina Monpita, the really short punk song. 
And that was that was 2015, so that's quite a long time ago now. And so in the interim, Eurovision has had this turn towards singing in national languages, and it's become quite cool and popular again to sing in national languages. And I think there's an authenticity that comes out of the music a lot of the time because you're singing in a language you're more comfortable with, you can express yourself more coherently. And so I think Finland this year and Karia have really managed to ride on the wave of that. It's also, I think, the particular genre that Karia works with works really well with Finnish. As a language, it's quite short and sharp and staccato sort of sounds, and that works really well for the rhythm of cha-cha-cha, that sort of rankovika, yapaliompiki, paiviataka, and it's very like chop-chop-chop structure. It works very musically, I think, as well, but it's also, it's nice for Finland because it's it's not as well known a country compared to other European countries. Like when I moved here, my grandma asked if it was safe to move here because <laughs> um, she'd never heard anything about it. So it's a nice kind of way for Finland, I think, to share a, a side of themselves that they don't normally get to share because Finnish is a hard language to learn. It's not impossible. People do it. I am learning Finnish, but it is hard compared to learning something like French or German or Spanish. Um, so it's nice that it's such an accessible kind of song, despite the language. As somebody who has also been dabbling in Finnish Duolingo since about March, it's very phonetic. Mm. And like, if you see a letter, you're going to say the letter, but also just I'm now hitting like I'm using a flashcard app and like the numbers. I'm just like, how how are these the names for numbers? There's no handholds for me as as someone based in English. So it's 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 fun. I find the numbers easier than other stuff. It's the grammar that really gets you. But yeah, nothing's familiar to English speakers. I suppose it's a lot easier if you're Estonian or Hungarian. As an English speaker, I've struggled. I, I have joked many times that you have the tree of all of the languages and how they're connected and finishes on the bush next to yeah. the tree. <laughs> it's just that. It's doing its own thing. I had not seen a nation go so all in for their entry since watching everything Iceland did around Hattari, part of that feels like there's a very strong visual identity. But why do you think Finland went as all in as they did with, with Kataria this year? Yeah, that's a good question. And I haven't seen anything like it really either. Um, I think there's some stuff that I think is a little bit easier to like. The, I don't know if you saw the pictures of the, the stone men outside the train station wearing the boleros. They dress those up for lots of different things. So it's very common to dress them up for football and hockey outfits during the the height of the pandemic, they wore masks. And then when everyone got vaccinated, they had little band-aids on their arms from their vaccination spots. So they uh, sort of feature of Helsinki culture to dress them up depending on the moment. Um, so it was nice to see them also embrace Garia for that as well. We have sculptures in Boston from the children's book, Make Way for Ducklings, that get dressed up for things like that oh, all the time, cute. too. And I saw, I think uh, Belgium did it as well for Gustav. They dressed up one of their little statues so that's very cute. It's nice when countries do that. But um, I think part of why it's so exciting for Finland this year is like, this is an amazing song and it's sort of the best song Finland's had for a long time. So it's easy to rally around it because it was a clear contender as a winner from the start. But I think part of that is also because the competition was Sweden and Finland and Sweden have this very long, complicated history. To me, it's very similar to Australia and New Zealand kind of relationships. It's a like big brother, little brother kind of thing. They love each other, but they don't necessarily express it as clearly as they maybe sometimes could. Um, so for Finland, it's very common in hockey games to be playing Sweden and to not win. A colleague was telling me about a game the other day where Finland 
was in the lead by two points and in the last like 30 seconds of the game, Sweden won. So they have this history of very close, narrow misses and missed victories. And so I think possibly that's part of the appeal this year was like, oh my God, we're up against Sweden. We can finally beat Sweden. And we didn't, but we did in the people's hearts, the the televote. It tapped into that kind of historical relationship a little, I think. There was a video that I saw, I think it was like two days ago, Latvia beat Sweden in a hockey match Mm. and uh, people went outside the Swedish embassy and and were singing (laughs) cha-cha-cha. It's like, oh, wow, this is, uh, yeah, uh, definitely a sibling rivalry going on. Yeah, it's very funny. (laughs) I can definitely imagine my sisters doing the equivalent to me, like playing cha-cha-cha outside my bedroom if I, I don't know, it's very like sibling rivalry. But it's interesting that there is this kind of sportsy angle that has kind of attached itself to this year's Eurovision, which feels a little unexpected, but maybe it shouldn't be. Yeah, it was quite competitive, I guess. I think this is the first Eurovision that was really, like, I had a much stronger stake in the outcome this year than I ever have before. Oh, no, actually, it's it's about on par is when Australia came second to Ukraine. And now I'm fully behind Jamala and I'm like, that was an amazing song and it definitely deserved to win. But at the time I was like, Australia was robbed because it was the first time we'd ever done that well. Was And we were still very early in the competition. And so this was like the same kind of feeling. It was like, oh my God, Finland might actually win. This is incredible. And for me personally, it was like, this is going to make my research so much more convenient because I can do it at home. (laughs) So (laughs) I was very heavily invested in it, possibly at the expense of like a clear judgment about the quality of the other songs. What is your research area? Broadly, it's about anything to do with the international politics of the contest. So I've written stuff in the past about the UK's relationship with Eurovision and how the Euroscepticism that you see around stuff like Brexit also sort of is evident in their relationship with Eurovision. But the new stuff that I'm doing at the moment is I'm starting this cool new project about fans as agents of cultural diplomacy. So people who love Eurovision travel to other countries, they learn languages, like you're learning Finnish on Duolingo for fun. That's bonkers. Who would do that? It's so hard unless you live here and you are forced to learn the language. I find that stuff really interesting. Like how much does that sort of speak to how countries are perceived by each other, how much tourism and stuff they get from each other, how much people learn about other cultures beyond traditional stereotypes and stuff through things like Eurovision and other mega events like sport and stuff. Going into the Euroscepticism piece of it, how do you think the UK did as the host country? They did a phenomenal job and uh, like no shade to Liverpool, but I really had much lower expectations going in. I just sort of, because we've never seen this kind of host city relationship before. This is the first time since 1980 that a country other than the winner has hosted. And it's the first time that the winning country wanted to host, but couldn't. So this, this was new territory and Liverpool absolutely rose to the challenge. But I wonder if that's Liverpool's victory. It's not Britain's victory. Um, I don't, I mean, the BBC paid for it, I guess, but Liverpool as a city is quite sort of independent and they've got their own music culture, obviously. So I think you can see that in the way it's so beautifully represented, like Ukrainian culture and featured Ukrainian artists and music and landmarks through the postcards and stuff. But a lot of the British stuff was sort of Liverpool stuff. It was the Liverpool songbook, but they did an excellent job. 
Before all of the Eurovision madness started, there was also the coronation. We watched the coronation in our rental flat. We later that day did a Beatles tour, and our tour guy was mentioning that there weren't a ton of coronation parties in Liverpool because Liverpool views itself separately from some of the rest of England. I think Liverpool baked into their bid for why they wanted to host is connection with Ukraine and all sorts of like really turning this into a cultural festival. And that was evident in the, the breadth of events that were happening all around the city. Yeah. I think they did a better job than they would have done if Sam Ryder had won and the UK was hosting on its own. I think they really sort of took the responsibility to host with Ukraine very, very seriously and did a very good job. And I, I think that's also really good for Eurovision because they've set this gold standard for the Eurovision village and for the cultural festivals and stuff that can go around it. Because um, was it Turin where people were quite disappointed that there was not really anything going on? And this really emphasizes the party kind of stuff around it. So hopefully they've set a kind of precedent that is followed for the remaining like however many years i hope sweden lives up to the challenge too but the euroscepticism stuff it's nice to see the uk sort of return to form with like a a positive relationship to eurovision because like up until the 90s they were like the swedens and the islands of eurovision they were amazing they won heaps of times they had lots of really good songs they were very enthusiastic about eurovision and it's only really since gemini and the accusations that they got null points because of the Iraq war, like that kind of stuff that they have been downhill. So it's nice to see them back on top. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Where they belong. What is the national temperature like in Finland post second place? Obviously, there is not like a, a market square gathering for, for Karia, but like what is what is the vibe right now? So I think there was. Everyone went Dorilla. They went to the market square. Oh, good. There was Dorilla. Yeah, so there was Dorilla. Um, people went and met him at the airport. Everyone was very enthusiastic. I, I don't know if you guys watched the live concert that he did when he came back. That was very cool. I think the energy is still quite exciting. People are very proud of him and very excited. And there's all this like nice mythology around Garia from Vanta, which is sort of an area in greater Helsinki. So he's like small town boy. I mean, it's part of Helsinki. It's a large city, but everywhere in Finland is kind of small town in terms of, I don't know, the vibe of the place. So it's like this nice hero kind of rising from like underdog story, kind of a a thing. And people are really enjoying that. And he's just like a very nice guy. I've been seeing all these like TikTok videos of him talking to small children and these children are like, oh, I like your shoes. I don't have shoes like that, but I love yours. And he's like, oh, that's really cute. One day you'll have your own shoes, man. It's just very sweet. And he's a nice, slightly weird guy, but that's what Finnish people are like. Slightly weird, but very nice. Awesome. Do you have any sort of predictions or hopes of how Finland will be able to follow up next year? Oh, I don't know. That's tough. I, I I can't think of any other country that has done that well and then comes back immediately the next year with something amazing. I, I don't know if you can sort of live up to the pressure of it, but I have very high hopes that Finland will keep sending high quality stuff, but I think it might be sort of like we've seen Italy's trajectory over the last sort of 10 years since they came back after being away for a while. They came back and they've been steadily working their way up with like Mahmoud and then eventually winning. And so hopefully we'll get to see something like that. So we might get a few more years in a row of 
high quality stuff that doesn't quite win but is still very solid sort of top 10 top five finishes and then maybe if we're very very lucky we will get a winner and have uh eurovision in helsinki or tampere or somewhere that would be amazing. Yeah, yeah that, that that was, I think, my big disappointment. It's like, I really wanted to go to Helsinki yeah. next year. Because <laughs> we yeah, I mean, still could. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not far from Stockholm. You can come afterwards. But we've had a Eurovision in Stockholm and in Malmö quite recently. It would have been fun to have one in Helsinki. Mm-hmm. She's not to downplay Lorene's victory. She's phenomenal and the song is amazing. It's just like, I was very excited for a Eurovision in Helsinki. It would have been fun. Well, Zoe, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything that you'd like to plug or point our listeners to? Can I tell people to follow me on Twitter? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, yeah they, yes. can, they can follow me at, at Zoe Charlotte J. I ostensibly tweet about work, but I mostly just tweet Eurovision stuff. Thank you so much for having me. Kitos paljon. Thank you so much. Yes, kitos. <laughs> That was such a great conversation. Yes. Again, I absolutely want to chat with her about more things, re-Eurovision and fan culture. We did that interview first, and that was actually really helpful for the second interview we did. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was really helpful for setting the context for ourselves. Again, like we don't have eyes on the ground. So it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. What is actually happening in the day to day? Another area that felt like interesting perspective on what all of this has felt like was YLE. It also just felt in line with some of the career day stuff we did last month when we chatted with Anthony Brown about songwriting. We like learning how the Eurovision sausage gets made. So what does the delegation do all of the other weeks that are not their national final? What does that look like on the ground? And also, what did that feel like this year for for the team at UMK? We got the chance to chat with Maddie Muluaho from the team at YLE. He has the unique experience of working on UMK for the last few years and being on stage this year as one of the backing dancers. A wild combo of things. He has been joining Karia on stage for some of those various festival performances he has this summer. And we just sort of picked his brain about what this looked like behind the scenes at UMK, what all this has felt like post-Eurovision, and what's next for that team. Hey, Mati. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us. This was a particularly exciting year from your delegation standpoint. Uh, Excellent job in the results. Yeah, I mean, we're still processing this whole thing. It's, what, like three weeks since the grand final, and we've had some time to think what we just did. I'm honestly still high on the dopamine, and yeah, it's been once-in-a-lifetime experience. Oh, that's fantastic. I mean, we have a a small sense of what the reaction has been in Finland, but what what has been your experience of like how your country has enjoyed the results? Well, I mean... Obviously, when we were in Liverpool, we didn't have a sense of what was happening back in Finland, but we were getting, you know, these photos and reading these articles about how, like, the statues in Finland were (laughs) wearing these green boleros and even the tram in Helsinki was painted green. All these kind of things, and we were like, what is happening? But then, you know, after Eurovision... On Sunday, when we got back to Finland at the airport, uh, there was like, what, like 4,000 or something people waiting for Garia and the delegation and and even the dancers. We got like an unreal reception. Like, I, I'm still kind of emotional about it. And and then, you know, in the in the week after your vision in Helsinki, I would go to like the grocery store or on the tram, wherever. There were people coming up to me all the time being like, I just want to say you brought so much joy into my life. And this is like, a burst of light in my spring and 
And that's very unlike of Finnish people. Usually Finnish people are quite like, you know, they give you your own space and they don't come up to you and speak. But this time, I don't know, it was just, it was so nice to see how people seem to really found meaning in this whole Eurovision project. Oh, that's fantastic to hear. Did you have a sense that this was going to be the reaction as Eurovision was drawing closer? Or were you kind of pushing out any sort of coverage of the contest or any of the hype leading up to the contest? We had the national final UMK already in the end of February, and I guess you can call it some kind of a phenomenon was building up already before UMK, and then when Gary won UMK after UMK in Finland, right? We could feel how how this might become something very big. But at the end of the day, you know, we in this production we're like a small bubble. We work with kind of a you know still a small group of people, and we're busy in rehearsals. We're in the studio and. You never really know what the actual reaction is going to be when you throw this in the front of 200 million people or an arena full of people. We had some indication, but we had no idea how sort of wholesome this reaction would be. Seeing the reaction at UMK was one thing, but I was on the ground in Liverpool and still like, okay, is this just an online thing, which an online thing is not always an in-person thing, but just being in the arena for the performances, just like, oh, wow, no, this is this is going somewhere. Yeah, and, you know, it was the first dress rehearsal with audience that we did. And between the set changes, the artists come on stage and they kind of like, you know, set themselves on stage. And, and that's not visible on TV, obviously. But that's the moment when the audience, the arena, like sees when the performers come on stage. And I remember this so vividly how we like kind of creeped up on stage and this whole arena starts screaming and chanting. And, you know, I take my in-ears out and I'm like, wait. Dude, they, they, they kind of seem to like us, you know, <laughs> but that was a very memorable moment because, you know, you, you really don't know when you're in that bubble what people think. So you're part of the delegation and we're also part of the performance. Is that a normal thing that happens in the delegation or was this a special circumstance where that that came about? Yeah, it was kind of a special circumstance. <laughs> no, I've been working in the production team of, of UMK and Eurovision for three years now, but in parallel, I still work as a professional dancer but those have never crossed they are they, they live their own lives these two paths that i have but then as we were creating the, the live performance concept for cha-cha-cha for umk and uh we decided that okay we're gonna have four ballroom latin dancers we needed two male identifying and two female identifying dancers and then we started casting dancers for it and then we realized that we couldn't really find anyone who could make the rehearsal dates and then the show dates who has a background in latin ballroom and who also has experience working like live tv and like this commercial dance style and so then our choreographer was like well how about mati if you just do it and i was like well if you insist <laughs> um, i'm fine i'll do it <laughs> oh my arm you're twisting it no, <laughs> <laughs> no but I mean, yeah, we, we did, you know, talk this through within our production, like, are there time conflicts, schedule conflicts? But honestly, like, it, it has been a wonderful synergy between these two roles, because I'm already in my production role as an associate show producer, I'm so closely working with the artist. And then it's kind of a natural extension that you're there with him on stage and in rehearsals. And, and you know, I don't know if you're familiar with some of the creative directors who work on, on Eurovision, like Sasha Jean-Baptiste. 
most of them have a background as a dancer and and even like the head of delegation for Sweden uh, Lotta who is also one of the head producers of Melody Festival in Sweden she used to dance in Melody Festival not even a long time ago so it's actually quite you know fascinating seeing all these former or current dancers work on Eurovision numbers whether it's as producers or choreographers or creative directors so getting into your role as a part of the delegation what does your role do over the course of a year for any given entry? Not not necessarily the specific one. Right. So there's the Eurovision part of this whole year, right? Because every country has a head of delegation and then assistant head of delegation. And really depending on the broadcaster and the country, the sort of division of work and roles depends on the country. In a way, it's a year-round commitment because you're still in touch with all the other podcasters and, and you're preparing for the next Eurovision that's coming up. And, and in a way, I mean, it's like media or entertainment diplomacy, right? Because you're constantly managing your relationship with the EBU and the other podcasters. And so we have meetings, regular meetings with the other podcasters. Uh, in UMK, which is definitely like 80% of, of my work, really, my work as an associate show producer really focuses on building the whole show from pre-production to casting to making music videos to making a bunch of other content to promo, PR, press. And then mainly my role focuses on producing the live performances for the contestants that you see in the live UMK show every year. And then also the whole journey of the host and the interval acts and and so it's it's mostly like managing people people's times resources and then you know a sprinkle of creativity on top which i love the most you know the sort of the planning period or like that when we create the concepts performances uh, we've worked with creative director Bank Gerudman, he's from Sweden now for two seasons, and he has a lovely process of creating these performances. And that's my favorite part. Like you can really go crazy with your ideas, and some of them might stay, and some of them might not. But you know, it's a bank. A bank has really blended into our kind of a crazy Finnish team very well because you know we are so unhinged, and there's not, nothing's out of the limit. You know, <laughs> watching in the last couple of years, it feels like there has been a real step up in sort of the concept around the performances like this year's show there was absolutely a light bulb moment when Karia's performance started I'm like yes this immediately but beforehand like everything else like it was just really just front to back a great show is is there anything that's been done to sort of attract that higher level of talent to the contest first I'm so glad to hear what you're saying um also coming from an American because you know Every time I hear about Americans who are excited about Eurovision, I'm like, yes! And especially if you're excited about UMK, so thank God. Um, but yeah, to, to answer your question, I, I think it's a very multifaceted thing, right? But it's a bit of a snowball effect, like a momentum, right? UMK has existed already for like, what, 12 seasons? So it's a long time in the making. And a lot of people have contributed to it and, and to the fact that we're here in this situation right now. Um, but no, I think... Personally, what I would say right now, how I feel is that when artists and record labels and the team behind the artists see how much audiences in Finland and outside of Finland love the show and what kind of fandom has been created around it, especially recently, that's a nice reassuring thing to know when you're considering applying for UMK and especially when in the past years you can you can see how there have been a lot of standouts, not only the winner, but, you know, the runner-up or even the third, fourth, fifth place artists have their song or their career has taken off thanks to the megaphone that UMK can be. 
so yeah, I, I guess that's a, that's one of the things um, that's kind of feeding itself. It's a, it's a momentum where where um, it's easier to attract talent. But you know, at the end of the day, UMK stands for Contest for New Music, right? It can be someone who is extremely well known, like the Rasmus last year, or it can be someone who is completely new, like Geira uh, this year. No business on the dance floor was her first song ever that she released. So I think that's also the beauty of the format that the the new music can come from anyone. UMK has also experimented. With- with a lot of different scoring mechanisms and like di- different ways of determining who's going to win the contest. It seems like the switch to the 75-25 televote jury model has been working rather well. I mean, Blind Channel crushed the scoreboard. Cardia also crushed the scoreboard. Do you think that that is contributing to their success at Eurovision as well? Well, I think it was a decision that was made a few years ago that just felt right for UMK. I mean, personally, I still love having the international juries as part of the show because, you know, that's inherently in the DNA of Eurovision, right? The whole like, hi, it's Italy calling element in it. And it's a little bit chaotic. It's a little bit, you know, you never know what's going to happen. And I love that element. But then at the same time, if you have 75% of the total points coming from the public, that really feels to the public like they they have the final say. And that, and that really matters what how they vote. So that works for us. Shifting to once an act has been selected, what does your team do once you guys are on the ground in a host city like Turin or Liverpool? Now, in this current Eurovision format, typically the delegations are in the host city for two weeks, two and a half weeks, depending on which semifinal and which half they're performing in. For example, this year, uh, the first week in Liverpool, we wanted to make a little bit calmer for the artist, like have a little bit more downtime because he had been working his but for for um, Eurovision, he, he was on tour, he was doing promo, we were doing rehearsals. He was quite tired when he arrived, so we were like, okay, we're only going to do the mandatory things. We're going to focus on the rehearsals, the onstage camera rehearsals, and then just take it easy outside of that. All delegations and countries have two rehearsals on, during the first week, uh, and that's usually quite nerve-wracking. And for example, like when you've only rehearsed your performance in a studio, not even necessarily with the actual set and which is like, you know, tape markings on the floor to mark the stage. And then you actually arrive to the arena and suddenly, you know, it's 24 cameras and all these people and like you're in a rush because you only have 30 minutes on stage. And, and so it's usually kind of a slap in the face when you arrive there. And um, now I got to experience it as an onstage performer. So it definitely felt <laughs> like a slap in the face, right? After the first rehearsal, uh, you go to the viewing room for 20 minutes and you get to see the rehearsal and then you give your feedback and comments to the local creative team. And then you do that one more time. And then already after that, you have the first dress rehearsal. And so it's it's a pretty quick process. And in a way, it's a very public process because even to this day, like you still have photos from each rehearsal that are published in these little clips on YouTube and TikTok and whatnot. And so, you know, it's nerve-wracking if you still want to make changes, if you still want to reevaluate some of the elements in the performance, all of that process will be public. It's very exciting every year. Apart from the rehearsals in first week, you know, a lot of artists, they do press, they do interviews, they do social media. This year, luckily, we had so much downtime that we were able to hang out with the other delegations. And and particularly, I'm happy about Garia's little bromance with Slovenians, Boyan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that has taken off the rails. <laughs> You know, the final week, obviously, we are so focused on the dress rehearsals, the semifinal. And, and this year, we brought a sauna truck to 
Tuli Report. It was Gary's uh, idea, and then he organized it with his good friend who runs this soundtrack company. And it was a great addition to this week because you know he did a lot of fan meet and greets and and press there. And I, I we only realized it when we were there how perfect the location for the soundtrack was. I had gotten into town like the Thursday before. My travel group and I had just been down there the, the day before doing touristy things and walking down to the arena and the press center on Monday and going, well, that wasn't here before. Taking a photo and saying to the group, guys, 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 guys. Did you, no, did you go was... to the tunnel? Did you try I it I did, out? yeah. How was it? It was great. Like, that was just, that was just a chef's kiss sort of tie-in of just like, this is just, this is, yes, this is entirely what I want from Eurovision Acts. This year was just kind of insane the level that Liverpool transformed itself for the contest. Yeah. And it was just sort of a, a surreal cherry on top of it to just, again, on Monday morning, walking over to things, trying to remember where that bakery in the, the dock area was and just going, wait a minute, there's a sauna truck here. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, Liverpool felt like, in many ways, like an ideal host city. I don't, I don't know if you felt that, but the city was living and breathing Eurovision and everywhere you went people were talking about it they were excited about it Liverpool I guess is small enough for the entire population of the city to be like yeah let's do this for example the Euro Village gig that we did with Garia where I also danced I don't know it was probably like 15,000 people or something like that and, and I mean it was a proper festival that was awesome and, and that's actually these like uh, promo gigs or performances are a big part of this whole Eurovision tweaks. Some artists do it more and some less, but uh, we did um, the Nordic Party, which is like a little side press event organized by the Nordic countries. And then we did a few other promotional performances in the Euro Village. And it takes a lot of short nights and a lot of like extra motivation to be doing the gigs in between all the rehearsals and uh, the semifinal and what whatnot. But um, yeah, you got to really like take it all in once you're there because you're going to miss it right right after one of the big changes this year was having the rehearsals be closed off to press how did that change help your process absolutely i mean i understand there are like arguments and elements to this discussion that i understand from both sides from the side of the performers and and creating an act uh, to your vision i think personally it is helpful not to have the whole sort of especially the first rehearsal open to the fans or the public because you know it it should be a free space to still fail and try things and you know if you know that there are eyes from the press or the fans or whoever on you while you're stumbling on stage in a, in a costume that is not finished you know that might feel a little bit like unideal for some people i know the uh, the format is still being kind of formed but I, it felt good this year that it was a little bit more closed for me personally from our side as well, like we've had digital press access before, and I found it really nice that particularly those first week rehearsals were just a space where people are still getting a feel for the stage. So giving them that space, because there are so many other rehearsals that particularly press is going to be able to see, I think it's just helpful to have that, that private space. The first rehearsal, like, you know, while you're on the stage, you're just like, okay, there's the edge of the stage. And okay, there's that light that is making me blinded. You just want to have your own non-pressured stress-free space to to do the first rehearsal. How do you think the success and just sort of the, the feeling in Finland will affect how UMK approaches next year's process? I mean, we've already started pre-production for next season. And, and I can say that the atmosphere within the team is just so special like we're so excited for next season and and to to bring another 
year of just pure entertainment and and be this megaphone of 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 stories and music for for these Finnish artists. We're so excited about it. Personally, I think I'm aware of how we have to be mindful in in drafting the next season in a way that doesn't feel like it's manufactured or it's it's trying to do the exact same that we did last year, right? There's a there's a saying in Finnish uh, called purista uh, maila. I don't know how to translate this, but it's like you don't want to like force it. You don't want to like try to come up with something in a forced way. And so I think we just have to bring all the ingredients together and throw them in the pot, and then just hope that something comes out of it. You know, because in a way the show is just like a facilitator of of this music. And, and when you throw that music to the fans and the the videos and the performances, then they kind of start living their own lives, and you can't really affect that too much. So uh, yeah, we're gonna do our best working together with the artists and labels and and um who knows who's going to be the next Gary of next season so there's a hockey team here in the united states the dallas stars they were in a playoff run and they kind of adopted cha-cha-cha as what one of their songs have you encountered cha-cha-cha popping up in unexpected places oh my god all the time <laughs> All the time, you know, it's it's unbelievable. Actually, I'm I'm in London right now, and I went to a dance class here. There's a dance academy called Bass Studios. Shout out to Bass, um, where I've been going for years and years. And I went to a class two days ago. And I came like one minute to the, late to the class. And then when I come into the studio, the teacher, who I don't know from before, is like, "Everyone, stop! This dancer who just walked in is the cha-cha dancer." <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, these some of these dancers start chanting like cha cha cha. I was like, "Wow!" Like, okay, I'm in London. I didn't expect this at all. And then. Uh, well, I have been like recognized in weird places. I just saw the Moulin Rouge here in London, and these two women come up to me like, "Oh my God, are you the Finnish Chacha dancer?" And so, first, like, like I did not ex- did not expect to be recognized in London at all. <laughs> But yeah, and then then I have been you know sent been sent videos from my American friends in particular how uh, they've heard the song on the radio. Like that's a big surprise to hear Finnish rap song on the radio in the US. <laughs> like that doesn't happen very often. And um, a lot of drag, actually. Like I have just just now um, today, I got a video from my friend who saw the Mighty Hoopla festival here in London, and there was like a full-on big drag number of cha cha cha. That's how you know you've created something that people can like kind of take for themselves when <laughs> they're doing drag. No, but yeah, it's unbelievable, and you know the whole commercial success as well of the song on Spotify. And I think it was number seven at some point on Spotify Global. And number one in the viral viral list in the U.S. So yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I I had been monitoring that just because like okay, well like at some point it's gonna stop and like it fi- like sometime in the last few days it did, but like for a while it would just be number one on the viral 100 in the U.S. It was just wild to see. Yeah, I mean, I, at the end of the day, you know, it is a rap slash hip hop song in Finnish, and the way that that can resonate with people all around the world is like no one saw that coming. So no, I think yeah. we're all equally excited about it. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. And, and congratulations for being part of something that has just been so delightful and fascinating to watch grow and just making people so happy. I, I think that's that's the best part of it. 
Yeah, thank you. And thank you for supporting UMK and supporting Finland in Eurovision. Um, perhaps you might come and see UMK in Finland in person one day. Hopefully, <laughs> it's very tempting. Yeah, like yeah, we, oh yeah, we, uh, yeah. Def- definitely wanted to go to Helsinki next year, and we may still do that uh, anyway, and maybe watch Eurovision from a bar in Helsinki. So, <laughs> Ooh, don't don't threaten me with a good time, Mike. Sorry. <laughs> we have we have a very exciting season coming up, and mostly all the information can be found on our social media. So YouTube is a good place to follow us, and TikTok and Instagram. That's where we're going to be updating everything about next season. The YouTube content from UMK this season was fantastic and particularly thank you for whoever is doing the captioning behind the scenes for adding in english because that was huge yeah we're so glad to hear that because you know we're aware of how our international audience is on youtube in in particular and i think at some point we noticed that like depending on the content but like with the music videos almost 40 percent or 30 percent of the views were from outside of finland and so we're definitely trying to cater to the international audiences yeah i think that's one of my favorite things about umk is how you have so many different feeds in so many different languages for the commentary just from an accessibility standpoint it's great to see and i i hope a lot of other countries start to follow suit in that yeah i mean it's it's an important element for us uh, it has been for many years actually to have the commentary and um we, we've for example now introduced recently a commentary in, in ukrainian and in the um, sami language as well and in sign language all right well mati thank you again so much for for chatting with us about this this has been really informative thank you guys for having me all right so that's gonna do it for this episode of the euro what thanks for listening the Euro What Podcast is hosted by Ben Smith, that's me, and Mike McComb. That's me. If you'd like to help support the show and access a ton of bonus content from the Euro what AV Club, head on over to patreon.com slash eurowhat. Free access to our full archive of more than 200 episodes going all the way back to the 2018 contest can be found on our website at eurowhat.com. Next time on the Euro what, we check in on the news as we look forward to Malmo hosting next year's contest.